1: Everyone always wants to know, in any off-season setting, who looks good? Who looks good? No matter what subject I'll bring up in covering an OTA or a mini camp or a training camp session, it's always, who looks good? And I'll say, well, you know, they didn't really do those kind of drills, and it's kind of hard to tell. They're not, it's football in shorts, whatever else, and the same questions will come. Who looks good? You know all I'm going to do today? All I'm going to do is just give up. I'm going to tell you who looks good. Good morning to you. Good Friday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports. This is Daily Shot of Steelers. It comes your way bright and early every weekday if you're into hockey and or baseball. I also offer daily shots of Penguins and Pirates in the same place that you found this, and I would invite you to give those a listen as well. OTAs completed yesterday on the south side. Next up, And last up before actual training camp will be the mandatory mini camp that's next week, also Tuesday through Thursday. The only difference between the two is that OTAs uh, are voluntary and the sessions are a little bit shorter. At the mandatory mini camp, you got to be there and rather than the sessions going about an hour and 50 minutes, you'll see them go closer to two hours and 20 minutes. Just laying out the technical part here. But yes, there were three weeks of OTAs, nine total sessions. If you add up all the practice time, you're talking about 20 hours worth of, well, organized team activities. And in that time, there are things that you genuinely can't evaluate at least not realistically way at the top of that list is line play they are out there in shorts they are not making any significant contact they are and i use this advisedly going through the motions not in the negative sense they're actually exercising the plays the way they are supposed to move and nothing else now if you see someone you know, spinning their head around like an owl, that's kind of a problem. If you see someone failing to keep the arm down of an oncoming edge rusher and that edge rusher gets his arm up to stop a screen pass, you got a little bit of a problem there. Not that I'm describing something that actually happened this week, but that did happen this week. Certain left tackle. Same goes for everyone on the other side of the front lines, including the edge rushers, really including the you know inside linebackers as well. Even the running backs you can throw into that because nobody's tackling them. They run for a touchdown every play. And if you're Najee Harris, you'd literally take it to the house every play, even if it's 80 yards away. He does this. So the only thing that's left are elements of the passing game, meaning both offensively and defensively. You'll see quarterbacks attempting to make passes that, while they're not exactly under duress, they're passes that have to be made to someone running a route somewhere. There generally aren't decisions, not too many decisions anyway, other than when they get down to the goal line, but you're you're looking to just, you know, point A to point B. Wide receivers can make a splash. Wide receivers can make a really, really big splash. Everyone was talking early in OTAs about a catch that George Pickens made, and that's exactly who you'd expect to come up in a conversation like this. He wasn't alone. There were others. But the players as a group who have owned these OTAs, again, with my begging you to remember the full context that it can only be elements of the passing game, have been the defensive secondary. And within that, the names that have been the most exciting have been the new young corners, meaning Joey Porter Jr. and Corey Trice Jr. And between those two, I'm going to pick... As my MVP of OTAs, meaningless as that is on so many levels, not least of which is that it's coming from me, is Trice. Partly because of what he was doing on the field. He was, as players have acknowledged, using that big long reach of his, not only to make plays on the football, but also at times to discourage receivers who were coming his way i'm gonna have a tough time explaining that to you verbally it'd be easier if i was just standing in front of you right now just you know waving my arms or going through the the actual uh rhythm of what the receivers would do but they would approach him and they would see no hope so they'd bail on him and they'd cut away or they'd turn back and it looked like it's something that wasn't at all part of the script and the pass would land somewhere nowhere near where it was supposed to go so who exactly messed up and why and how you can't know that but i can know when i look at grady brown the defensive secondary coach and see this big smile on his face as he's looking over at trice that he knows what happened and that it was very very good for his player So there was a lot of that. There was a lot to like, in addition to the fact that so many other players, defensive players, offensive players even, talking about Trice, not saying that he's better than Porter, not saying that he's a shoe in to start or anything like that, but just being part of the discussion that was in there is an achievement unto itself never mind for a seventh rounder for any draft pick for any draft pick so yeah trice came in and did very very well and trice began to make a case for himself even before latrobe which is very very hard to do in this setting when we come back j1q J1Q comes from Joe Abraham, who says, DK, it's 95 days till kickoff. 95's a number that I hold dear to my heart as one of my favorite stealers of all time. Greg Lloyd. What is the criteria of becoming a Hall of Famer and why has Lloyd never been mentioned in this conversation? Well, Joe, he's mentioned. He's in the conversation. He's been in the conversation. Really, since his playing days, how could you not be when you look at his achievements? Three-time All-Pro, that alone is something. Ten-time Pro Bowler, uh, he finished second one year, third another year in the Defensive Player of the Year voting. Statistically, 54.5 sacks, 35 forced fumbles, 16 fumble recoveries. 11 interceptions. This guy could do everything. And on top of that, and I'm going to guess this is one of the reasons he was one of your favorite players, he came with this menacing aura about him that was a throwback. Even though he was playing in the 90s, it was a throwback to you know the 70s when you had Mean Joe Green and Jack Lambert and everybody scaring the you-know-what out of the opponent. Lloyd was very much that. So why isn't he in the hall? You can make a hall case. All right, let's start there. I just read off some pretty strong numbers. And I said at the time Kevin Green was elected that Lloyd was more deserving out of the two outside linebackers that the Steelers were utilizing in that 3-4. So I'm going to give you two things on this front. One, and I don't... Mean to say this to be disrespectful of the recently deceased or whatever, but you know, I was asked a football question and I need to say this in order to give a football answer. Green was a one dimensional player. Green could only do one thing. He'd come off that left edge and he'd find a very, very quick path to the quarterback. And 10, 12, 14, sometimes even more occasions over the course of the year he'd get to the quarterback and he'd run up a sack total and that's what he did he ran up a sack total that wouldn't allow him to be kept out of the hall his overall achievements including the stuff that i mentioned about all pro and pro bowl and everything else the rest of it the interceptions the forced fumbles whatever even something as basic as tackles lloyd was the superior player but if you watched the steelers back then you would know that Lloyd was the one making all of this happen. Now, to Mr. Green's credit, when he was inducted into the hall and he got his yellow jacket, who was front and center at that ceremony? That's right. It was Lloyd because he knew who was buttering that bread. That's one part. The other part is this. Boy, are you going to hate this. If you didn't already hate that part, you're going to really hate this one. Lloyd wasn't just mean on the field. He was mean off the field. This wasn't some false persona. This wasn't somebody who could turn it on and off. This wasn't, well, it wasn't Mean Joe. You know, Mean Joe was exactly what he was on the field, but a complete professional and a great, great human being off of it. Lloyd was an absolute scourge in that locker room. And let's remember that while it's not all writers voting for the hall of fame there's a selection committee and a process and everything else you do need writers to go to bat for you to support your candidacy to make your case and while no that should not be something that is influenced in any way shape or form by how they are with us i'm not saying the writers are right i'm trying to explain to you yet another reason why it didn't happen now i have a hall of fame vote in baseball and i have all kinds of evidence to support that i've never allowed somebody being a jerk to me to influence my vote in one direction or another i've had players who've been jerks to me that i've voted for i've had barry bonds who was actually great with me and i don't vote for him because of steroid usage And I get accused all the time of not voting for Bonds because he was supposedly a jerk. Well, he wasn't a jerk to me, so I didn't care. He was great with me. But the voters are human as well, and the voters are going to allow that sort of thing to influence them naturally. So I've given you a lot here, but I feel that Lloyd would slash should have a solid candidacy for the hall while not exactly being someone who's absolutely got to be in. I appreciate the question. It was a very good one. I appreciate everyone listening to Daily Shot of Steelers. We'll be back to do another one of these on Monday.